Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Okay, welcome everyone to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Picard edition. Hello, welcome. If you're new to the show, I am Michael, the host, and usually the co-host with me is David. Hello, David. Hello, everybody. Not usually, every time. Every time. <laughs> yeah, every unless, time. Uh, unless I'm like a variant of another parallel universe. Oh, maybe, maybe a golem? A, a golem, golem version golem, of David? Golem, yeah. Yeah, when I've had enough of you, I've killed you <laughs> and then put your... Put my unconsciousness. <laughs> ...into an android body. So that I can just look at you as the same as before, which Four. makes no sense. Why would I kill you then? <laughs> just like Shaban writing, it makes no, no sense. sense. Who wrote the beginning of this discussion today? J-Ban. J-Ban? He needed a job. I'm like, he came to me, you know, hat in hand. I'm like, sure, buddy. Do you, do you think like he's outside that writing room just going, you know, I, I have this idea. And then all of a sudden, Kevin Coleman goes, you, shut up. You, you go into the hallway. He probably <laughs> just snaps his fingers. He probably wishes he had Q power so he could just make him disappear. I want to make you just i'm gonna rip you from the timeline <laughs> you don't exist that would be a funny thing shavan's just sitting there and and akira colesman's just keeps snapping at him. i think that's what they all did at the end of season one when the reviews came in that most people hated the first season he probably was fired and he was given a box like go get all your shit out of the office <laughs> and then on each side of the hallway as he's walking out the door everyone's just snapping <laughs> So Adam. <laughs> All right. So if you're a new listener, we do cover a wide variety of Star Trek content and you can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search from the holodeck. Okay. So this episode was directed by the one and only Jonathan Franks and written by Cindy Appel. Okay, David. So this season is shaping up to be quite interesting and very different than anything we've seen before and yes they are utilizing certain elements we've seen before that's not derivative necessarily like some are saying it's called continuity and canon yes. you're utilizing things that have been established in the world of star trek that then helps you tell a story not not reusing it's not redoing it's using things within canon to tell your story there's nothing wrong with that Mm -hmm. But the overall story, as I was saying, for the most part, is very unique. And David, as we had theorized in the last episode, we are dealing with the Picard bloodline, not just Sean Luke. Yes. But we were incorrect about the Guardians of Forever. Forever. We were close. It's close. It's still one of the super beings, right? Yeah, it's still one of the super beings from well, the original series. We don't know much about these super beings, but we know what they're about for the most part. Yes. And what you were mentioning, Dave, is we're essentially dealing with a type of being or beings that have been mentioned 
uh, say alluded to in the original series. Uh, more specifically, it ties into Gary Seven. Gary Seven. It, it ties into the alien race that was supposed to be Star Trek, the original series spinoff, which was Gary Seven. David, I had no idea until today uh-huh. when I was working on the notes that the Gary Seven concept was supposed to be a spinoff for Star Trek. Yeah. Essentially. Did you know that? Yeah. Because Gary Seven. Back then, Gene Roddenberry was taking note of like other series that were out there. And a lot of people, especially in Star Trek circles and in another franchise, basically mentioned he took the idea of Doctor Who and wanted to bring it to, to Star Trek. And Gary Seven was supposed to be his version of Doctor Who. Wow. And the, the Doctor. Who knows what? If that would have happened, who knows what Star Trek would have been like. Oh, yeah. And if you look at it for, like, Star Trek fans that don't know about the Gary Seven story from the original series, think about it. When you go back and you watch Gary Seven, Gary Seven is this being that has an interdimensional apartment that can fit anywhere. He travels throughout time and space. That's, he an has, That's a really cool concept. He has a very... Very good-looking female assistant oh. that turns into a black cat. Oh. And on top of that, he has a device that's in in the uh, – uh, that looks like a pen. Yes. Which is basically the Dr. Sonic screwdriver. Yeah. Maybe that's why it didn't work. Maybe they felt like it was a hack maneuver. I'm like, listen, Gene, we love what you're doing with Star Trek, but X-Day on the Doctor Who, Doctor Who. just – it feels desperate. Just stop. Well, because, like, at that time, Doctor Who wasn't as popular – as it became like later on and Gene Roddenberry was like going, you know what? I see them doing something across the pond in England and he wanted to bring that over. We've had <laughs> listeners because I'm not a doctor who guy. I don't like it. I've tried to watch it, but I just don't like oh, it. I've but watched everything of doctor. Who, <laughs> Even the bad stuff. We've had some listeners reach out and tell me several years ago that essentially star Trek or Doctor Who is the British version of Star Trek in terms of popularity yeah. and what and how and what was popular at that time at that time yeah in the 60s going on at the same time. Oh yeah, I mean like Doctor Who across the pond in England uh England <laughs> but uh, around uh, around that area Doctor Who was just as popular as Star Trek yeah. was over here in North America. See, that's interesting. I had no idea that this was going to be that this was going to essentially be the first official spinoff of Star Trek. Yeah. Maybe we'll get there now because when you think about what they're doing with Strange New Worlds, that's essentially take two on a dead pilot. I would. I would really like them to bring back the character of Gary Seven because Gary Seven was really awesome. And actually, he, he they quote unquote did bring him back in uh, the comic series that basically yeah. we were covering with uh, – uh, Star Trek Year Five, but that's not canon, though. But it's so. not canon. Yeah, but like that in itself, like shows uh, was supposed to be kind of like where they thought. Yeah, they were going with the character of Gary Seven. Yep. Okay, so just so we give a little bit more context behind this Gary Seven issue, so the the episode of Picard here that we're talking about ties directly into Gary Seven, 
and the original series episode, Assignment Earth. So if you want to go back and watch that episode, it's one of the classic episodes, those iconic episodes that people write about and discuss all the time. It's one that they they did time travel. (laughs) Yes. Now, in Assignment Earth, the Starship Enterprise time traveled to 1968 and accidentally intercepted Gary Seven as he was beaming to Earth. Seven, who was accompanied by a black cat named Isis, Isis. explained that he was a 20th, 20th century human who was raised on another planet that was never named, and his job was to protect the human race in this critical time yes. in their history. Gary Seven was a Class One supervisor designated Supervisor 194. He arrived on Earth to investigate the disappearance of two of his colleagues. When Seven learned that they were killed in an automobile accident, Supervisor 194 took over their mission to prevent the launch of an orbital nuclear platform that could start World War III. Yes. Keep that fresh in your mind right there, okay, everyone? Because I have a feeling this is all connected. World War III is a big part of Star Trek canon. And essentially, it's the very moment in human history. That's when the light switches on. Yes. And they realize they need to change their ways and then usher in first contact. So we're going to get back to that in a second. So Gary Seven also used a versatile device called a servo and had advanced technologies such as the Beta (laughs) Beta 5 computer. Beta 5 computer. Okay, David. So... In the Star Trek TOS episode, Assignment Earth, Captain James T. Kirk and Mr. Spock beamed to Earth incognito and helped Gary Seven destroy the orbital nuclear platform. They also encountered Gary's human assistant, Roberta Lincoln. Yes. Uh, Jean-Luc has already made several references to Kirk's Enterprise in this season of Star Trek Picard. Yep. You don't do things like that just because you want that Easter egg moment or that recognition from audiences, because to be quite honest, no one gives a shit anymore. Mm-hmm. Like we all know all these shows are interconnected. So when you make mention of captain Kirk, sure, it's great the first time, but if you repeatedly bring up captain Kirk and the enterprise, there's gotta be a reason why the writers want that fresh on our minds. And it's because I don't believe this is a coincidence. Star Trek Picard season two does seem like it's, directly tying into the events of assignment earth yeah i do notice that especially like with a lot of elements that was happening in this episode it really has been hammering the 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 notion that we're tackling the one of the greatest mysteries of star trek what caused the federation to actually become the federation and everyone since uh, TOS knows by nar- by narrative, World War Three was the thing that that s- story yeah, that, that that started the whole springboard into becoming the Federation, because humanity had to had to hit rock bottom right to climb itself back out of the abyss. Yes, and and, and they've always alluded to it throughout even all of Star Trek. I mean, even in Deep Space Nine, when the crew went back and they showed what like. The twentieth, the early twentieth century was to them, and you see all the homelessness, and mm-hmm. like 
I'm so happy that basically in Picard in the last episode, they touched on that to show that, yeah, that that element of the 20th century is right there still. Well, it's also trying to get us ready, even though we are living in this very century and we are aware of the atrocities um, that's going on ecologically, as well as when it comes to genocide and um, all of the things that we do to our planet and ourselves we are our own worst enemy. Yeah. And that has always been the foundation of Star Trek, that humanity got to a point of just complete failure and it needed to change in order to survive. And that was the turning point was, was uh, of course, World or I should say the end of that turning point, the, yeah. the, the ideology that formed the Federation. The utopia. It comes out of all of this chaos and this madness. And that is why... Now, when you look back at the first four episodes of Star Trek, many of the things that they're doing makes a lot of sense, like um, bringing home the point about immigration and uh, the issues of homelessness. Yes. And also they've mentioned pollution. It's not because they're trying to be woke necessarily, like some people are saying on social media. They're trying to sow the seeds of our destruction. They're trying to show you that... This is directly everything that we're doing right now in this fictional world of Star Trek. We're on the path that leads to our annihilation and also humanity's triumph. But in order to get there, you have to go through the ashes of essentially Armageddon, yes. World War Three, And then from that moment is when we reach our enlightened phase. And that's why when you look at those past episodes, everything is there purposely because they're trying to give us the idea that – or, or sell us that the notion that we are living in the end of times, yes. that we are at that point, that singularity, if you will, of when humanity will change forever. Oh yeah. And like the, the thing that I think people have to understand, there's a difference between writing a woke story, what throwing around the, I'm, I'm getting tired of people throwing around the term. This is too woke. Yeah. For every single story that has to have an agenda, yes, there a, an agenda piece is terrible. You know, we, me and you have gone back and forth about this. When that's all that's driving When it. it's all that's driving it. Yeah. However, you have to look at, you have to look at what Gene Roddenberry set the table prior to everything. He wanted to show that the Federation is the utopia. The utopia had to start at rock bottom. So showing us these elements of like injustice and uh, actually de deplorable environments and stuff like that makes sense because now you, you see the Federation building up. That is different from talking about a woke agenda. And that's the thing I think people have to get across when I always hear them criticize a story now when they say, oh, this is just about a woke agenda. You, okay. you also have to remember in Star Trek canon. Okay, so we're in the year 2024 right now. World War Three, according to Star Trek canon, starts in 2026. 2026. That's two years mm -hmm. from where they are. So the fact that they're really selling, or in some cases that some people may say, overselling the idea that we are staring at our destruction. It's just around the corner. Yes, they are selling that idea. They are selling that because idea. in Star Trek canon, World War Three is just two years away. And you got to also remember that basically Gene Roddenberry's point was to use Star Trek as kind of like a cautionary tale. 
Mm, yep. It was supposed to be, hey, if you don't wake up and you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. Armageddon happens. World War Three happens. And also there's not a lot of context. So there may be some people who don't quite understand what's happening, which we'll get into in a second. But just to strengthen this final point here or this point that we're on here before we move on. You also have to remember that the eugenics war that's also going, been established in Star Trek canon since the conception of Star Trek has already taken place as well. It took place from 1992 to 1996. Yes. So they're also dealing with the aftermath of that. That's why the scenes with Soong in this episode were so vital to help, to help the audience understand some of the context of this, of this potential fallout. And you notice the difference between bringing in Soong at this point in Picard, then in season one, this has a point to it. What? This has a point why he's here. What does that mean, David? Because you're taking you're taking into context the legacy storyline of the Soong family. And that's why I have no problem with them introducing a new Soong because this one actually makes perfect sense. Yeah. And we're going to get to why in a second. I don't want to drop jump too ahead because if we do our entire discussion will fall apart because this episode is fucking difficult if oh. you know all the ins and outs of star trek canon this episode is literally a defining element to all of star trek and that's why now i'm a little scared not yeah. because it's bad it's actually good but because if they fail they run the risk of destroying so much so star literally everything in Star Trek will be destroyed if they drop the ball this season because they're yeah. juggling all these major elements in Star Trek canon and trying to connect it back to Picard. And uh, that takes us to Laris, Dave. Yeah. Or Laris. Okay, so obviously she does not know Picard. She knows of Picard's because her assignment is Renee Picard. Yes. But I'm wondering. Because they're not addressing her similarities, why she looks exactly like this Laris, the Laris that we know, I should say. I'm wondering if her job was obviously to watch Renee Picard. I'm assuming her assignment as a supervisor is to keep an eye on the Picard bloodline. And that would make sense then why she has embedded herself into Picard's life in the 20. What is it, 24th century that we're in now with Picard in the TNG era? It would make sense why she has embedded. And if they end up explaining that as the reason why, you know, she made herself look like a Romulan and then embedded herself into Picard's life in order to keep an eye on him. And if you look at season one, even though I don't believe this was their strategy, her and her husband both protected Picard. Yeah. During were, numerous moments during that season. They were his guardians in they, a lot of ways. They were. So I'm wondering if they're going to tie that in retcon it essentially, you know, or make flesh it out. I, I, I would say is a better way of, of putting that. I would say like probably flesh it out because like you have to explain. Because the Shea band didn't have this idea. No, no. Because especially since Laris from the very beginning has been portrayed as this person that just watches over Picard, but she's married. Mm -hmm. She has a husband. Well, maybe her husband's also a supervisor. Exactly. And then all of a sudden in season two, you have this underlying chemistry 
I'll probably romantic tension is probably more more appropriate to say it, but like this tension between Laris and Picard Her, yeah. with no sign of the husband anywhere. Well, he died. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm assuming that. I mean, we are jumping the gun here. We'll we'll find out what you know what part she plays down the road. Oh but, yeah. But I think at this point, it's safe to say that is that is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with uh, a supervisor who was also watching after Sean Luke after Sean Luke during his time. Yeah. All right. So this is the first time ever that since maybe encounter at Farpoint that Q actually appeared to be truly a bad guy. Yeah. The reason for this is not completely clear. They have alluded to the fact that he is ill. Something's not right with him. Perhaps he's losing his grip on reality. Does he have a, some type of cognitive disease like I do, obviously that's messing with his sanity because as of this episode, he appears to be completely out of character. Yes. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Normally, I would. Normally, I would say, how dare you? You're destroying someone's characterization. But it feels intentional rather than them completely trying to retcon Hugh's characterization. What part does he have to play? As we know, he was directly involved with the Rene Picard aspect he was attempting to do something when his power gave out. And as plan B, he's now approaching this new Soong, the Soong character that was introduced. And now, David, we're dealing with yet another member of the Soong family. But this time, Mike, I still say it's far better dealt with than freaking, um, I even forgot his freaking. Eric. Eric. Soong. Yeah, Eric the, one, Soong. the one that didn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's better dealt with than Eric because like at least with this soon I actually really feel for this character's plight I mean I like the element that they throw in like he's a man that's pushed to the limit because he wants to save his daughter but also if you look at everything that we've ever been given pertaining to Soong the Soong family yeah they they're always in the gray area they're not necessarily bad they're not good in fact I would say they're very hard to pinpoint in the ways of morality and ethics. They, typically, they're in the gray area. But what's the one thing, the driving force, that always pushes them into that gray area? It is their sentimentality. And it's their yes. connection to family. Family, family it's and children. It's their need for family. It's their yeah. desire to save their family. We've seen this now, uh, now in Picard. We've seen it in TNG. TNG all the time. Uh, yeah. So... I'm okay with this. this. This actually works really well. But the the mystery now is what part does this new Soong, Adam Soong, play in the future of Star Trek? Because as I said, Q's power failed him. Yes. He then enlisted the help of Adam Soong, who interestingly has a daughter that looks just like Soji. Soji, yeah. And her name is Kor, I believe. Was it Corey or Kor? Kor. Kor. Kor Soong. Who has a genetic disorder. Yes. Now before we get into the whys. Because there are. I do like this bit. Because uh, it, it again aligns well. With Trek canon. The Soongs have always seemed. As I said to live within that gray area. Of ethics. Not outright evil or necessarily bad. Just questionable. Yeah. And now let's take it up. A notch further. 
they had mentioned in this episode during some type of judicial committee. Yeah. They mentioned Head by Leah Thompson. Yes. Which was awesome. Yes, it was. They mentioned the spearhead operation. Now, this is the first time we've heard of this name, but what he's accused of is not something new. Spearhead Operation was a private military organization on Earth in the 21st century. That's what we know so far. Yeah. Now, while searching for a cure to his daughter, Kor Soong's genetic defect, Dr. Adam Soong partnered with Spearhead Operations in 2024 to conduct genetic experiments on ex-soldiers in violation of the Shenzhen Convention. Yes. Okay. This obviously is connected to the eugenics war. Yeah. Which had everything to do with creating super soldiers, Mm -hmm. which was banned in this fictional world of Star Trek. That's where we got Khan. Yes. Now we also know that the other Soong, Eric Soong. Hold on. Let me bring up these Soongs. Hold on a second. There's (laughs) just too many of them. It's confusing, isn't it? Yeah. Give me a second here. I'm going to bring up the Soong family so I have all of my Soongs in line. Well, while while you have that, the one thing I want to say about like the Soong lineage The thing I love what they did here was they brought it full circle with the Soongs are kind of like have this really tragic history when it comes to their legacies. You have Adam who has a sick daughter who's dying and he's doing whatever he can to continue to to save her. And then you get to uh, Data's father. Um, I forgot. I can't say his uh, first name properly, but Dr. Soong who – Wanted sons, but couldn't have any because his wife died. And then the two sons that he did create end up becoming like Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. And they can never get along. And it created this, this break in the family. And again, the Soong family just seems ill-fated and like this tragic curse. And that's why I kind of like how they're bringing it back. Because even this new Soong, Adam Soong, is directly connected with Eric Soong's Eric Soong. interest. If you look at his biography, and, and he was introduced in Star Trek Enterprise, yes. and he was directly connected with the um, with Khan's super soldiers. Yes. Eric Soong was a brilliant doctor of genetics, of genetics in the 22nd century. He believed that humanity's abandonment of genetic engineering after the eugenics war was a mistake. So now we have these connections and that's why I'm saying that they, what they're doing here, David, they got to be careful. seems like they're connecting all the old dots, some dots that we never knew needed to be connected. Some dots that have been sitting stale for decades. They're now bringing them back to the forefront and now fleshing out and recontextualizing literally everything we know of the history of Star Trek. Now, David, this is where it gets complicated. Adam Soong, the new Soong that was introduced in this episode of Picard, was actually already mentioned in the second episode of this season. Only in the background, there was a hologram of him. Yeah. And they were showing us the new confederation of Earth. And in the background, you see a hologram of Adam Adam Soong. And he is saying the the line yeah the, safe galaxy is a human galaxy yes the, the the nazi slogan if you will made yes. to fit into the context of star trek 
Now, it looks like we might be dealing with a predestination paradox, Dave, and this is where it gets complicated. When you start looking at everything they're doing, okay, having Picard try to secure a future that entails his ancestry. Now we have Adam Soong involved and the Soong family. We know we can't stop World War III. It has to happen in order for the Federation to come into existence. Yes. I have a feeling that we are playing with a predestination paradox, at least for part of this. And if you don't know what a paradox a predestination paradox is, let me reread this yet again. A predestination paradox or causality loop is a paradox of time travel that is often used as a convention in science fiction. It exists when a time traveler, let's put Picard in there, is caught in a loop of events that predestines or predates them traveling back in time. And then they themselves have a hand in creating their own future. Yes. And it then brings up the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And that's an answer that continues into something called infinite regress. There is no answer. Or for, for our less educated audience oh, members dude, out there, on. Mike, think Futurama. Yeah. But basically the whole the whole idea of Fry going back into time, having sex with his grandmother, and basically... Being his own ancestor. Yeah. That's what a causal there loop you, there is. There you go. So you go back in time to stop something or make sure something happens, and you realize that as you're doing that, I'm a part of the very past that makes my future. Yes. And there's the paradox. So how is all this going to fit into the bigger picture of Star Trek? Well, if you look at every war or all the major wars in this time period in the, in the Star Trek universe. Uh, universe, you have the eugenics war. They've already touched on that. that and it's already happened. It's already happened. You have World War III that is supposed to happen in the year 2026. That's just around the corner. I assume Q, or at least they want us to believe, that Q is trying to prevent Rene from traveling in order to doom humanity, humanity. right? Humanity, yes. I have a feeling that She's not supposed to necessarily do this. She's supposed to fail. I think it's the opposite. You bring a very interesting point because I re- you brought this prior hand and it made my head spin. But when you think about it, it makes complete sense. It, goes, it can go two different ways. Either yeah. A, if they want to go the simple route, Picard's going to realize that in order for him to secure their future, and suddenly we realize there's a paradoxical element here because... In order to secure that future, Picard has to be here in the past. And what that means is that the very future that we have been privy to for over 50 years of Star Trek canon is only made possible because of Picard traveling back in time and by Q fucking with time. Fucking with time. And it feels like Q, yes, there's something not right about him. Yes. At the same time, what if there's a much bigger story here? What if they're trying to show us why Q is, in sick. fact, con- or sick or connected to Picard? Oh, yeah. Maybe his connection to Picard is because this is the part he plays in the future of humanity. When he called himself death and the destroyer of worlds, I have a feeling that what he's doing is because he is the catalyst of World War Three. Yes. World War Three has to happen in order for humanity to save itself 
But in order for that to happen, millions upon millions must die. Yes. And that can only happen if Q fucks with the timeline and then causes Picard to go back in time to fix that timeline that he fucks with. Yes. That's a paradox. That's a paradox. I honestly feel that's what they're trying to do. That Picard single-handedly is the greatest human being in all of existence because he's the very one that all of Starfleet and the Federation and this utopia rests on. And it makes it makes sense. I know for a lot of people, probably their heads are spinning at this notion. But one thing that you have to realize as Star Trek fans. Was that clear, David, first off, or was I babbling? No, Does no, that, that was clear. Sense? Okay. That was much more clear than I thought, I thought we would get to. <laughs> because, like, it does make your head spin. But the one element that you have to, as Star Trek fans, we have to maintain. Zephyrin Cochran has to be that catalyst. It cannot be anybody else if it's somebody else that changes everything of first contact and first contact was the establishment of basically hey the federation that's the beginnings of the federation the vulcans see us actually maintain get warp capabilities and come and see what the hell's going on if that is changed so that's why i like what you're going with in the very beginning was like what if this whole point is Q needs to stop whatever Renee is doing because if he doesn't, Renee succeeds before Zeph from Cochrane does and then thus changing the entire landscape. And if, if, and now this is where my logic comes in, if Renee succeeds first contact before prior to Zeph from Cochrane during a time frame when humanity is this down, out, and broken they would turn into a totalitarian regime like that because you're essentially just basically giving, you know, a monkey a grenade <laughs> at that point. Oh, David, be nice to the monkeys. I, I, just I, say you're giving a, a human a grenade because I, that yeah. fits better. I, I have very little faith in, in humanity. Yeah. Well, but. okay, Dave, so, so that's why I'm saying, like, no matter how you look at it now, Picard is literally the reason why we have the future we have. Let's say the show ends and he succeeds. Exactly. Well... Okay, he succeeds because he went to the past and now he's a part of the past. Of the past. He's a part of the history and the future that's now secured is because he played his part in the past. <laughs> so either way you look at it, it's a paradox. And either paradox. way you look at it, Picard is single-handedly responsible for the utopia. Yes. Which I think is, if that's what they're doing, David, if there was any other character in Star Trek, I might shrug and frown and be like, what the fuck? But if this is the way they're officially sending the character Picard off into the sunset because as we know Patrick Stewart is an older gentleman and it's all realistically there's only so long he can he has this. left and how much longer he could do this show so this is their final goodbye to Picard and they give him this type of importance importance in the world of Star Trek I think that's fantastic yeah it's and essentially because like as Star Trek fans we've always all of us always felt Jean-Luc Picard embodies everything about the Federation. He is by far the epitome of an icon of the Federation. It goes on the line of, you know, like what they did in Discovery with uh, Captain Pike, you know, sending Captain Pike out there because he represents the best of us. Picard's like that. Picard represents the best of not just the Federation, but of humanity. Because if you think about it, all the characters out there, 
Picard has always been portrayed as human, but he's very Gandhi-like. You know, he's very peaceful. He's always quick to negotiate. He's not quick to violence. He'll, he can be a violent person. I mean, we've seen it before in, in First Contact where he lets his emotions go, but that's because he's human. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. Okay, David, so let's say all of this that we've been talking about is, in fact, going to happen, let's say. Let's say Soong did something terrible. Let's say he was bad, even before <laughs> yes. Q's involvement. The way the writers have set this scenario up is very well done. Yeah. They've essentially given themselves a large time frame to play in. And then they use Picard to establish this idea when he said not a lot is known after this period because the century leading to first contact was rife with uh, chaos so right there gives the writers a bit of a blank check. Yes. They can dabble and fuck around pretty much with anything in this time period because essentially World War III erased human history. As we know, wars do that. If you look at wars from a century ago, two centuries ago, many times people's ancestry is destroyed. Uh, true historical facts are not quite clear. I mean, mm-hmm. look at the, the Mayan culture is perfectly, is a perfect example, or the Aztec culture is a perfect example of this. That's a culture that's only four or 500 years in our past. And yet we know nothing about them. We know tons of things about the Greeks and the Romans because they had a system of, of language and writing that, is, that secured their history. Yeah. That made sure that people would know of their history. The Aztec culture was annihilated and destroyed literally overnight. Everything was burnt to the ground by the Spanish conquistadors. And to this day, we don't know anything truly about that civilization. We have ideas. So it's very easy to smite a culture in such a way that you would know nothing about them a hundred years, 200 years later. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the importance of Rene Picard was made clear a bit in this episode. It could also be misdirection, but apparently Renee Bacard's travel or her space flight is very important because she discovers microbes on IO, which is a moon, a moon of Jupiter, correct? Yes. Because that's what Europa is. I know Europa. that. Now, if people aren't aware of this, if we are to this day, scientists believe if there is any life in our solar system, that the only places that they could be is on the moons of Jupiter. Yes. Because of how they rotate, because of their rotation and their position to the planet and the gravity that keeps them going around that planet. And because of that, because of their position to Jupiter, there's a lot of speculation that there's an atmosphere because of that. Because that's one of the key things of making a livable planet is the planet must have a gravitational effect, a pull. Yep. Uh, They got to generate heat and that. And and they generate heat. Yeah. So I I apologize, David. I am out of sorts. (laughs) I have a dog next to me that almost died. Uh, Well, then also. I also can't think correctly today. Well, also you got to throw in, we're dealing with a episode that has time travel implications, science implications, and, you know, planetary implications. Because, like, that's a lot of stuff being thrown at the episode. And that's what I was telling you is, like, 
I'm not really sure about this because I like your 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 point that basically they they're doing a really great narration and they they're building a really strong house. Mm-hmm. However, I would add there that basically the house is built on cards. So like one little mess up can take the house of cards down. Well, the episode itself, it's a very strange episode because the episode was very good. It yeah, was. It was. But there's a lot of danger in this episode. There's also a simplicity too, which is might sound odd because is it, I don't want to say it's convoluted. There's a, if you know what to look for, exactly. there's a lot of moving parts. And unfortunately me and you have covered so many TV shows throughout the years. We can pinpoint those, those habits in, in TV shows and they're what we would call red flags. Yeah. You could say that there were a couple red flags in this episode where you go, hmm, that could be a sign of bad, like an omen, right? An omen of bad tidings. But like, at the end of the day, when I was done with this episode, I had a lot of fun with this episode because the implications were so yeah. monumentous. Yeah, and that's what I was getting to, Dave. Like, yes, this episode has a lot of gravitas. There's a yeah. lot hinging on it. There's a lot hinging and on it. And the writing was fine as well. But when you really break down... The, the mechanics of the episode, it's actually very simple yeah. and the plot is relatively thin. Yes. It's, there really isn't a lot going on. And at the beginning of the episode, I'm not a fan of exposition. I felt like they could have explained a few things pertaining to the supervisor a little bit better than, all right, I guess I'm going to tell you what I do. And I'm <laughs> exactly. going to tell you my purpose and I'm going to tell you who this Rene Picard's all about. That part, I understand there comes a point in a TV show when you're dealing with mysterious elements that you have to kind of have those types of things in order to fill in the audience. Yes. Um, But it's not always ideal for me anyways. So I did roll my eyes at the beginning of the episode when she starts telling Picard everything. But, But it does work for the purpose of the episode. As you get through the episode, you realize how heavy this can actually or could actually be. And because of that, I understand why they chose to give us that bit of uh, a bit of an exposition. Exposition, dump. Dump. yeah. But also on top of that, we just talked about even just one part of the episode. There's so many other parts of the episode that came together that were good. I mean, the Agnes stuff with the Borg Queen, really interesting. Kind of interesting implications at the very end. I don't want to give any spoilers because that was cool. What? Well, of course, we're ta- David, we're talking. Uh, spoilers are fine. We're spoilers talking. Spoilers are fine? Yes. Couple- are you new to this show, David? <laughs> well, Mike, that ending, I wasn't expecting that. I was like going, they're going to do that to Agnes? <laughs> what the fuck? Well, David, come on. Why are you, why are you playing coy? You, this, was your, this was your theory. This was my theory. You're the one who said, what if we're dealing with the Borg Queen, David? And here we are again. I'm too. <laughs> David, but Mike, David, you know, this is more of the paradox. This is, I think this moment strengthened your theory. Yeah. Because the Borg Queen exists <laughs> in the TNG era. TNG era. Okay. And that means what came first. If Agnes is that queen, she's only that queen because this had already happened. happened. She had to travel back in time and merge with the Borg Queen to become the new, new Borg, Borg Queen. queen. <laughs> and, and see... Even that again. I hope they're doing this. It that's what gives it so much gra- so much you know gravity that we're on the right path. If they do everything we're talking about and they pull it off, this could be the greatest moment in Star Trek history <laughs> because they can bring so many things together 
in a way that none of us would have imagined. And then when you bring up the, the theory that you had, because honestly, David, that's what got me to think. When you said, what if the Borg, Borg Queen, Queen is, is Agnes, Agnes, that's what started to make me think. So when I watched this episode, I'm like, you know what? I think everything that's happening has to happen. It's not simply about repairing the timeline. It's about making that timeline happen because this exactly. is the only way that timeline could ever exist. Exactly. Is by the timeline being broken first. And then if you think about it, and then you jump, you jump to Raffi and Seven. Now their, their whole plot line seems very innocuous because they're trying to save Rios, right? Mm-hmm. But their dialogue? Dude, if you look at the dog, what is, what is Seven and Raffi talking about? Breaking timeline. Yes. Time laws. Yep. And it's like... Hmm. Okay, you have them talking about breaking time laws and basically how that justifies everything. But then you have like stuff that's Agnes and Picard going on questioning about like what came first. Yeah. Did they come first or did that come first? What Mm -hmm. the hell? That is breaking time law. Yeah. (laughs) It's quite intriguing, Dave. And I will say the moment Gerardi had started to be assimilated, I was like, shit, David is right. Look at David. Yeah. Look at you calling the the big ones out. You called Q. I ran with it though. I ran with it. You ran with it though. I ran with it, but you did. You were the first one. You were the one that basically came up with for verbatim. He's gonna show up and go. Oh, maybe I'll make you feel better. Well, it goes to show you, David, that with our brain powers combined, we could probably write a pretty Pretty good season. Star Trek season. (laughs) Good Star Trek season. All right, so Dave, any final thoughts before you give me your score? Oh man, but I just wanted to double down on what what you were saying is like this was a very difficult episode, not in a bad way, but a difficult episode to actually read because like they're tackling things that basically are very heavy. I have a quick question for you, Dave. Do you think this is as I don't want to say confusing is not the right word. It's not confusing. Do you think it's as complicated to regular average Star Trek viewers or is it only complicated to us because we know the Star Trek history and we know the connections? But that's the thing. They they have to not only make it understandable to the mass audiences, but I think it's very important to make it understandable to Star Trek fans. I think that basically people from what I've been noticing who aren't quote unquote hardcore Star Trek fans, they're very intrigued. Like the mystery has them hooked. Okay. For Star Trek fans, for us, we're all worried because like we're reading between the lines. We're reading between the yeah. lines, and we're like going, "Oh my God, they brought in this in this element. So what does that mean for future? Does mm-hmm. that are they going to retcon this?" The only thing is, is what does the temporal wars fit in? Exactly. If the temporal wars are such a huge part of you know Star Trek history, then what? Why hasn't the temporal? Why hasn't any agent shown up? Right. Right. And Seven should know about the temporal wars because, like, the fact that— It was a part of Voyager. It was part of Voyager, and I do like—that's why I enjoyed that they were the ones that talked about, hey, temporal law. What's what's happened? They can't break anything. You know, that's why it seems innocent enough, but to a Star Trek fan, it makes sense when I think it was Seven that basically said, I can't just beam in there and pull Rios out because that would affect how everyone, like— Sees the t- sees the timeline. What the hell just happened? Okay, so you keep bringing up more points, David. That makes me think even further. So look at what else Q said. I am the butterfly. I am the butterfly. Okay, we all know that terminology and what it means 
to time travel, the butterfly effect. Yes. That's why I'm saying Q's here because he has to be here. He's, yeah. I have a feeling he's playing a part as well. It's not about necessarily him being bad or evil. It feels like this is what he has to do. And just like Picard's doing what he has to do, Q has to play this part as well. And think about this. When in episode one, or yeah, I think it was episode one or two, where Q makes the statement that basically the whole, my, one of my favorite moments in the entire series so far, calling himself the suture in, I'm, I'm the suture within the wound. Yeah. And because like. It's all there, David. You, you take that line, though, that monologue between Picard and Q. And at first I was like thinking, oh, Q's probably sick. He's dying. Mm -hmm. But then you get to this where you're dealing with like, okay temporal temporal effects he starts saying that he's the butterfly and all of a sudden i'm like going wait a minute we were thinking that q was acting sick what if q is acting guilty because he knows that the time has come for him to fulfill something that he is probably going to carry for the rest of his existence and the death of an entire civilization right causing a world war three yeah well, not that entire isolation, but close to close to it. Yeah. That would weigh heavily on any sentient being, especially Q, who has a he has a fondness for humanity. He always has. Yeah, it's it's very it's very you know it reminds me of like uh, the the creator of the atomic bomb. Uh, I think it was Oppenheimer, Doctor Oppenheimer, who basically said like he he was traumatized by the fact that what it what he became the I think the famous line was I became the death of the world or something on those lines. And that always stuck with someone who essentially blames himself for the deaths of millions upon millions of people. Imagine a sentient being realizing billions of people just died in this war because you created it. My score for this one was fluctuating all over the place, but I came to the end of giving it a solid 90. Because there's a lot of elements here I'm really liking. Yes, I see two big red flags to me, but after talking about it with you, I feel like, hey, let's give them a shot. We're at the midway point. Let's see where episode six now brings us. I think it's episode six. But uh, with all the storylines like getting weaved around, I'm hoping that the house of cards that they're building stays, stays calm. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. I'm I'm right there with you, David, and I am getting I'm getting nervous, and the only mm -hmm. reason, not because it's bad, but because it's good. Mm -hmm. And they managed to. I feel like Al Pacino in The Godfather Three. You know, they're pulling me back in. <laughs> you you know, I was in. out, and they're pulling me back in. Yeah, I felt like that in Episode Three. I was ready to just watch this with no expectation. Like, all right, you know, it's Star Trek. We're going to talk about it. We're going to cover it. And that's it. That's all there'll be to it. That's all there will be to it. That's it. No expectations. Just take what they give us and just deal with it. But now I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Now I really like what they're doing. Now I, I will agree with you and say it is on a house of cards. And sometimes that's used as a, as a negative, but in this case, it's more of a caution. It's like, because everything they're doing works. But if they just make one mistake, the entire thing can fall apart fall and apart. you can run the risk of destroying literally the entire history of Star Trek if you, if, you break, if you break it. So you have to be very careful. Yeah. 
you know, but the thing that, that I keep going to that, that I really hope this is what they're doing now is this paradox. Is Q the cause of World War III? Has this always been Picard's destiny? Will the events happening in Star Trek Picard Season 2 be the catalyst that initiates the very history that has been the foundation of all of Star Trek for the past 50 years? Can you imagine the point where... I'm, I'm imagining where it's going. And Picard, in the very end, coming to the realization that he has to help Q start world war three. Oh my god david in order to stop actually, it right now and actually to to fulfill humanity's destiny to become the federation they have to create they have to actually make world war three happen can you imagine that that it, goes right back to oh if they do that that brings up the whole debate that philosophical debate yeah about should we drop should we have dropped a nuke on Japan. On Japan. And there are people that say, well, yes, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of people died for numerous years. It was an atrocity. But then the other side says, but it also ended the war mm-hmm. and probably saved countless millions of lives. It's it, Everyone constantly says, well, it saved billion, millions of soldier lives. Yeah. Instead of going on a foot war. Right. But like- also, the people like who who come to the defense of that, you have to also remember, not only did the atomic bomb kill millions upon millions at that moment in Japan, but think of all the accidents, the, the all the accidents of nuclear energy yeah. since the bomb dropped. Yeah, how many of those people died? Yeah, it's, <laughs> so that's why I feel like that idea you just had, Dave. That what if Picard is the one that has to do it, and he's left with that question. Imagine if that's. Oh man, if they do that, that is the greatest philosophical question to ever pose in Star Trek. And you leave it between Picard and Q. Can you imagine that Picard has to allow World War Three to happen? And listen, yes. He understands that history is history and it has to happen in order for this future. But to be the actual one to allow it to, to happen, allow it to happen, that's going to weigh heavy. And if that's the way we send Picard out into the sunset, David, I would be very happy because that is such an amazing story. Yeah. What if this is the path not traveled? Yeah. Because you people, I said in the beginning of the show, it has to keep intact Zephram Cochran creating first contact. Yeah. Because that's the initial element that started the Federation. Yep. So we'll see what happens, Dave. I am very excited and it makes me nervous. Yep. But everything is going smoothly so far. I'm hoping listeners out there are also enjoying. Um, I know last year we had some people that love to hear us get angry during our discussions last season. And I'm hoping those people are appreciating our more positive discussions this year. Because they're also enjoying the season. For the most part, it does seem like there are people. The general consensus on social media does seem like a lot of people are enjoying this season. And the people who just shat all over the first season, including us, are now enjoying this season. So it goes to show you that just a little smarts in that writing room can really, you know, change the the direction of things. Yeah. And that's definitely what they're doing. All right, so this does bring us to the end. I want to thank everyone for listening and also head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Rayman Digital and pledge. 
If you pledge $5 or more a month, you'll gain access to additional podcast discussions that we do every single month, as well as our pre-shows. Don't hesitate. Head over. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.